0: is Bean to barstool a podcast that looks at the intersections of craft beer and craft chocolate my name is david nelson i'm a professional beer writer and an advanced cicerone and the creator and host of this show the music for this episode is by my dear friend indie folk musician anna p.s you can find out more about anna's music in the show notes or at her website annapsmusic.com you can find links and information about our guests in the show notes as well I hope you enjoy this episode of Bean to Barstool. When you descend the steps into the underground Tender Mercy Bar in the Webster Station neighborhood of Dayton, Ohio, and step into the dimly lit and smartly appointed cocktail lounge, you could be forgiven for asking yourself Am I cool enough to be drinking here? The bar made Esquire's prestigious Best Bars in America list in 2021, and you can imbibe from its thoughtful wine list and quirky but classy cocktails in Tender Mercy's disparate but cohesive spaces, from an intimate grotto to a chic bar top to a jazz club-like back lounge. Despite the hip and self-aware space making you wonder if you have the cred to be sitting at the cool kids' table at lunch, the bar's warm and welcoming service continually reaffirms that, yeah, you get to be here. There are no cool kids anymore. We're all grown-ups, and leaving the popularity games far behind means you get to enjoy a cocktail with a name like Werewolf Hospital or Byzantine Erotica, or a glass of Ruth Lewandowski Elimelech Riesling out of California, or a 40-ounce bottle of Miller Highlife nestled in a champagne bucket of ice, and leave the stress of the world up at street level. Upstairs from Tender Mercy is Sueño, a restaurant that explores what Mexican food is and has been and will be, under the guidance of James Beard-nominated executive chef Jorge Guzman. Guzman and his brother are the only two members of his family who don't still reside in Mexico, and the lifeline of flavor and memory stretching from his childhood home to the Sueño menu tethers him to his roots while allowing his creativity to blossom. But what does this all have to do with beer and chocolate, the main subjects of Bean de Barstool? There's something special happening at Tender Mercy and Sueño, and it starts with flavor, and the invitation flavor extends for conversation and story to be exchanged freely under its gaze. Flavor extends that invitation agnostically across food and beverage categories, and we can learn so much about our chosen indulgences by seeing them through the eyes of someone new to our particular favorites. No one knows this better than Lauren Gay, the wine director and sommelier at these sister establishments in Dayton. While Lauren's passion and profession revolve around wine, she explores the world of flavor beyond wine with a curious palate and an open mind. And today I've invited her to bring her tasting expertise to the experience of tasting beer and chocolate while sharing what she's learned as a wine lover. She's sharply intelligent and meticulously trained as a wine expert, but her honesty, humor, and enthusiasm remind us that the tasting experience should be fun and inviting for everyone. In this episode, we'll talk with Lauren Gay, a certified sommelier and the wine director and general manager of Sueño and Tender Mercy in Dayton, Ohio. Lauren is passionate about hospitality and just really great wine, and you can hear her enthusiasm as she discusses her journey as a psalm, what she loves about the tasting experience, and how she extends that experience to her guests. Along the way, I have Lauren taste two excellent beers and three bean-to-bar chocolates to get a unique perspective on the flavors of each from a seasoned wine expert.
1: I think my love affair with wine probably started in college. My best friend hated beer, and so we'd go to college parties and play beer pong with $3 bottles of wine that we bought at Kroger. So that's pretty much how it started.
0: That's Lauren Gay, one of the young food and beverage professionals breathing life back into Dayton's dining and drinking scene and putting the small city on the map as a regional weekend destination. I sat down with Lauren recently to talk about her career in wine, and I started out by asking her about her journey with wine, both personally and professionally. After the amusing story about $3 wine pong, she talked about the experiences that made her fall in love with wine in the first place.
1: I I had also worked in hospitality since I was 15 years old, and it really helped me overcome my shyness and my certain levels of introversion that I have, and really just fell in love with food and food and wine, food and wine pairings, cocktails, a whole nine yards. Um, I worked and managed a restaurant in Columbus that was kind of a a little bit nicer of an Italian restaurant in Columbus and learned a lot about wine there. And then after I graduated college, I did a bit of a career change. I joined the Peace Corps and I spent two years doing economic development in Kenya. Did not drink much wine in Kenya, actually. (laughs) When I came back to Dayton after that, I got back into hospitality, managing a restaurant, bartending, and met somebody and we decided to move to LA together. I had studied business and music in college, I thought that uh, music was going to be the industry that I pursued. And so LA was a great place to do that. And once again, got sidetracked with hospitality and just happened to land a really, really sweet gig a few blocks away from where I was living at the time with chef Nancy Silverton uh, at Kispaca. Um It's a little, I don't know, maybe 40 seat max <laughs> capacity, family style, Italian meat-based restaurant. So It's part of the Plex, all Italian-based. Spaka was such a wonderful experience for me, and everybody that I worked with was so super passionate about everything we were doing, and I had the opportunity to work with a few psalms there that saw my interest and saw my curiosity and took me under their wing and, you know, came to my house and did blind tasting with me and just randomly throughout the night of service would just give me little training sessions or tidbits of knowledge and... It was a very female-led management team there. You know, it was led by Chef Nancy Silverton. Our pastry chef was female. Our wine director was female. And both of the Psalms that I got to work with were, were women as well. And that's kind of atypical for the industry. And so I feel like there was potentially a little bit more of a sense of camaraderie uh, as a result. And that's when it really took off. And I started through the Court of Master Sommeliers getting certification. I did my, my first uh, certification level one with them. This would have probably been around 2015, I believe. Yeah, it was just propelled from there. My boyfriend at the time, he was a bartender and, and now a beverage director, but we had been saving up money. We thought we were going to go on a vacation and couldn't decide on where to go. And, you know, blink of an eye, I passed and we're like, man, we actually have a, a sizable chunk of change here. So we just decided to sell everything, get an RV and go on an extended road trip. Uh, exploring the country for all things alcohol-related, um, looking for kind of off-the-beaten-path things, uh, very geographically specific and culturally relevant uh, alcohol traditions. So drink drank rice wine in the Carolinas made by the Gullah uh, people, went to all different types of wineries in Texas and New Mexico, um, a really wonderful brewery in Texas, actually. As well, Jester King, which oh,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> became my, my all-time favorite from then on. So it was really wonderful. We started a blog. We did a lot of videos. We had the opportunity to work with some media companies to produce content for them as well, and did that for a few years, and then came back to Ohio to be a part of uh, Tender Mercy and Sueño and whatever else is, is on the horizon from there. Coming back to Ohio was, was an interesting decision. It's my hometown and Dayton specifically is really growing and thriving right now. It's a very, very beer-based town, just with the, you know, the, the German heritage in the area and being a Somme and being passionate about wine. There haven't been like too many opportunities in the community, uh, but it's it's definitely growing and it's really, really exciting to be a part of this, what feels like a renaissance in Dayton for entertainment, downtown living, food, hospitality, and specifically wine as well.
0: Absolutely. So going back to the early days when you were getting into wine, was there a particular bottle or a tasting experience that was kind of an aha moment for you where you realized this was more than just what you were going to drink when you were drinking?
1: Yeah. So Katie Vonderheide, which was one of my mentors, she was a SOM at Spocka. We became friends and she took me to Everson Royce Bar in downtown LA and we had a snack and a bottle of wine and she picked out a bottle. And it was some esoteric producer and great variety. It was called Closebon. It's a Tiburin from Provence, France. And usually Tiburin is used for a blending grape in rosé. And this was a red, a red version. Super light bodied, grapefruit, oregano, morel cherries, like all of these like very weird, complex things. And I think up until that point, having a lot of experience in the Midwest, it's like, oh, people want a California cab. <laughs> they want, they want me Sauvignon Blanc. It's, you know, these very basic things and then being like, oh my gosh, there's so much, so much more on the world of wine. You can spend 10 lifetimes studying it and still not even begin to grasp, even just the grapes of Italy, for example. And so um, having that experience with her, she, she's a Psalm, she's an artist and she can just speak so beautifully and intelligently about wine. Yeah, that was definitely an aha moment for me. And there've been a few others along the way, especially in terms of food and wine pairing. And, and getting the opportunity to try some really unique, limited release special wines. But I, I mean, that's not an expensive bottle that we shared, we probably paid 30 bucks for it. But just seeing her passion and trying something that was pretty unique for me at the time. Although I love cocktails and liquor and beer, wine was something that I felt a deeper connection with.
0: One of the things that I love about tasting beer or wine or anything else with another person. It's just the opportunity to learn from their perspective of the tasting experience. You work with wine. I work with beer and chocolate primarily. (laughs) uh, And what I want to do today is have you taste some beer and chocolate and hear your perspective on on tasting those as somebody who is normally focused on wine and is an expert in wine. So we're going to start tasting. I've got three different chocolates and two different beers for you to taste. And I'm going to leave it up to you which one we start with, with one of the chocolates. Which one jumps out at you first?
1: Ooh, Well, the first country I ever traveled to outside of the US was the Dominican Republic. So I was really excited when I saw this little bar. So let's start with that one.
0: The bar Lauren chose is Definite Dominican Republic Oco Caribe 70%. If you listened to the last episode with Advanced Cicerone M. Sauter, you might remember I had her taste this same bar. I actually chose the same three bars for both interviews because I thought it would be fun to see how these two expert tasters reacted to the same chocolates differently. As we tasted these three bars and two beers, all of which we'll talk about more in just a moment, Lauren requested to know as little about the flavor profile of each as possible until after she'd tasted them, so she could have a fresh and unbiased experience with each. Like any good taster, she took her time with each sample, and I edited out the silences for efficiency. Throughout these tastings, Lauren talks about her tasting process with wine, and you'll notice how consistent both the process and mindset of tasting is, regardless of its subject. When you learn to use all your senses and pay attention to your body and mind and feelings during the tasting process, that's quite transferable to another food or beverage category. As we opened Definite's Oko Caribe Bar, it was fun to hear Lauren exemplify this. This is a good one to start with. This is kind of a straight-ahead chocolate, so it's a good foundation for all three of these that we're going to taste today. So the chocolate tasting experience is pretty much like tasting anything else. You're engaging all of your senses in the process. I always like to take a moment to look at the packaging on chocolate because craft chocolate makers put a lot of work into their packaging. This one from Definite is kind of understated, but you can see on the other two that they're a little bit more classy and ornate. Uh, And then you're gonna take a look at the bar itself. This has a pretty basic mold to it, but you're going to take a look at the color and the shine on the bar. It's good to see a nice glossy finish on it. And then you'll smell the bar and then taste it and just let it melt on your tongue. Don't chew it up right away. And as you're doing that, I would love to hear anything that comes to mind as you're tasting it.
1: We'll be right back.
0: Hey, everyone. Getting a Cicerone certification is an amazing way to raise your beer knowledge and can be a game changer for your beer career, but how are you supposed to find the time to prep and how are you supposed to know exactly what to study? Don't sweat because the Beer Scholar has you covered. The Beer Scholar is a sponsor of Bean to Barstool, but I can tell you from personal experience years before I was doing this podcast how helpful the Beer Scholar study guides are. They offer efficient online courses for levels one and two that cover everything you need to know, tips and tricks for how to pass the exams, and include live weekly Zooms to taste and discuss classic beer styles together. They even have a new coaching program for the level three advanced Cicerone exam. I used the Beer Scholar study guide to pass my level two exam many years ago. I wish the level three had been around when I took that exam. I had to do it on my own. Wish their study guides had been available for that at the time. The vast majority of certified Cicerones in the world today have used Beer Scholar to help achieve the goal of passing that exam. If you are ready to take your beer career to the next level, visit thebeerscholar.com and check out their online courses.
1: So something that I notice is it's melting kind of slowly.
0: Mm -hmm. Well-made chocolate is going to melt at a higher temperature than, you know, the supermarket chocolates that we're used to eating. Uh, It has to do with the tempering process. They melt it and then cool it back off and melt it again. And doing that multiple times creates some like longer chains in the chocolate that prevent it from melting just on your fingers. So Mm. it will take a little bit longer to melt.
1: It's also 70% and I find it to be not very bitter Mm -hmm. or astringent. It's still really, really rich and, and almost creamy, Mm -hmm. very evenly keeled, like no harsh tones kind of pop out. I don't know when I taste wine, a lot of times I I kind of feel like it's more shapes. So like a a wine can be round or it can be sharp and angular. It can be, they, they can be like prickly or, um, thorny or something like that. So I feel like these, they're kind of, I taste in shapes, I guess. And so this to me is just very like rich and flowy and round and smooth and like elegant.
0: That's funny. I will do the same thing. And it is so hard to translate in that, that is like (laughs) a useful, it's fine to say that when you're just tasting for yourself, but then you're trying to give something helpful to somebody. And it's like, I don't know, this is sort of angular. Does that help?
1: Yes. Yeah. It's like, I'm John Mayer, you know, I like hear music and colors, you know. There you go, yeah, (laughs) synesthesia. (laughs) And too, like something that when you drink wine, you always talk about the finish and how long after you've swallowed the wine, does it, does it linger in your mouth? And I can still, I swallowed this chocolate over a minute ago and I can still taste it. It's got such a long, beautiful, graceful finish, um, which in the wine world is a a sign of a really, really elegant, well-made wine. So.
0: Excellent. Dominican Republic is a pretty prominent origin within craft chocolate. And most Dominican chocolates are known for having a bold but balanced acidity, like a little bit of fruitiness, like a berry-like note to them. There are a couple different origins within the Dominican Republic. Oco Caribe is a cooperative that sources from close to 200 different cacao farms in their region. And you're generally going to get like a smooth note of honey throughout and mm-hmm. then just subtle berry or citrus fruitiness underneath that.
1: Okay. Now I'm going to eat more now that you said that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then a question. So you said it's made by a cooperative and the wine world, a lot of times that's really frowned down upon as being of lesser quality or that you lose some of that terroir or sense of place. Is that, is there a similar kind so, of a perception in the chocolate
0: world? No, there really isn't. And so the the cooperative isn't actually making the chocolate. They are sort of aggregating the harvest from the region, doing initial processing, so fermentation and drying. And then they're sending that on and individual makers will work with that to make their finished chocolate. Because of some of the economic and human rights issues within cacao sourcing uh, anything that can benefit the farmers is looked very well upon. and so the cacao within this particular region, being able to aggregate from multiple farms really benefits the farms in terms of being able to negotiate that price. So it's looked at a little bit more like how coffee is rather than mm. how wine grapes would be.
1: Very cool. Yeah, Upon second visit I can I can pick out that kind of honeyed flavor too. When you, when you speak of berries and chocolate or you know, in wine, we have different fruit categories. We've got like orchard fruit, stone fruit, red fruit, black fruit, whatever. Do you, do you similarly kind of categorize berries into like red fruit, black fruit, blue fruit type of a thing?
0: Yeah, a little bit. It's not as common to find that in terms of the actual language, but if you dig a layer down, you're definitely seeing that generally the Dominican Republic, we're looking more at that, like red berry. Uh, type of note. And and conversely, what's weird is right across the island on Haiti, they often get more of a blueberry note to their cacao. Wow.
1: Well, I'm just learning so much. This is amazing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's so much fun tasting something with somebody from a different specialty. You both end up learning things because you have completely different vocabularies and, and structures that you're used to working with.
1: But yet there's still so much overlap too. There's still so much mm-hmm. similar or similarities too. So yeah, very cool.
0: So what was your familiarity with beer and chocolate before we're doing this tasting today? You mentioned that you've enjoyed beer throughout your life, but what's your familiarity with both of those?
1: My familiarity is minimal at best and definitely not as a combined experience. So this is all very new to me. I've never even attempted to pair beer and chocolate together. And Quite frankly, the thought kind of scares me because I know and understand how to pair wine with chocolate Mm. and beer seems like a lot more challenging. Uh, That perception could be completely false.
0: Well, I would say that it is challenging, but I think that it is very rewarding. So beer pairs really well with a lot of different cuisines, of course. And with some of those cuisines, it pairs kind of effortlessly. You you pick the right Mm. beer and the right food, and it's just going to be a great, easygoing table companion. Chocolate is not that way. You can get some really, really harsh combinations. And so it takes a lot more time and attention to get pairings that work. But then when you find them, they're really, really rewarding and eye-opening. So it's, it's kind of higher risk, higher reward, I would say. Amazing. We need to do a pairing at Swayno.
1: Sign me up. I'm Perfect. totally down for that. <laughs> we will, we'll,
0: we'll talk about that and get it worked out. <laughs> So let's talk a little bit about the tasting experience for you. Uh, typically, this would be with wine, of course. Do you have you know rituals or processes that are built into when you're going to savor a particular wine?
1: For sure, and I think part of that comes from your school of training, whether you trained through the Wine and Spirits Education Trust, the Court of Master Sommeliers, um, or just you know with a mentor a lot of those processes and rituals are kind of absorbed i've done wset and cms and i definitely lean more towards the processes of the uh, the court just because i have worked so much in service and their education is is very much service based so they have tasting charts i've taken tasting classes blind tasting classes through the court and so i've really kind of just i mimic the processes that they they teach I mean, everybody has their own little spin on how they actually, you know, look for acid or alcohol levels in a wine or, you know, markers that kind of indicate typicity for a certain grape variety, things like that. But my, my process is probably very similar to a lot of other people's processes. So when you first pour a wine, the very first thing you do is you look at the color. Uh, you try and find a, a flat white background to tilt the glass over and, and look directly above down to the white sheet. To, to see the, the color. You're gonna look for opacity, color, turbidity, if there's any kind of haziness to the wine. And I'm, I'm sure these are all things that you do with beer as well. <laughs>
0: right, yeah. Um, there's so much overlap between kind of anything that you're, you're yeah. tasting.
1: <laughs> and then next level would be to, to sniff and then give it a little swirl, sniff again. Wine spends a lot of time in an anaerobic environment in a bottle and adding and incorporating air into the wine really releases a lot of these esters and aromas and things like that. It it volatilizes the alcohol and and really just opens it up. So anybody that just takes a sip straight from the glass, you're really not maximizing the experience. So you got to get a a nice swirl, stick your nose deep down in the glass, (laughs) give give it a nice whiff. So much of the tasting experience actually comes from smelling Versus actually putting it in your mouth. So um, you never want to skip that step because you're going to be detracting from the overall experience. And then obviously, sipping, you can make that noxious, gurgling, sucking sound that Psalms do. <laughs> that's so gross. But once again, that's just incorporating more air into the wine. And you want to make sure that you're maximizing contact of the wine to your mouth, you know, with your gums, with your lips, with underneath your tongue, um, all around your mouth, because just knocking it back and and drinking it once again, you're not gonna fully subject all of your taste buds and all of these different parts of, of your body that can experience these taste sensations. So swirl it around your mouth, let it linger for a little bit and then swallow and then sit on it and think about it. I think wine was very challenging for me when I first started tasting and I thought that I just didn't have the skill, but really I just wasn't thinking about it. I think in, especially in America, but for so many people, eating and drinking is an, a means to an end. You know, it's not necessarily about the experience. It's about getting food and nourishment. And especially if you work in hospitality, it's doing it as quickly as you possibly can, because you're probably shoveling down family meal, standing in the corner of like the dish room somewhere <laughs> during service. So it's a bad habit that a lot of people need to, to untrain. And so um, yeah, just taking the moments to savor and actually just sit with the experience and think about it, I think has been maybe the most revolutionary skill that I've I've taught myself. And then, you know, there's different things that I, I do to kind of gauge tannin, sugar, acid and alcohol, um, since those structurally, if you're going through the process of blind tasting, those structural elements are the most key and informative pieces of information to help you assess the wine determine what where it came from what kind of grape variety is and furthermore what it's going to pair well with so when i swallow wine the first thing i do is i leave my mouth open for a little bit however much saliva collects on my tongue is usually an indication to acidity Hmm. and the more your mouth salivates the higher the acid is going to be in the wine and there have been times where i really have struggled with acidity based on how much sugar is in the wine too, because they cancel each other out.
0: Sure, yeah.
1: Riesling is a great example of a very high acid wine that a lot of times they leave some residual sugar in during the fermentation process to kind of balance out that acidity. So it might have a little bit of residual sugar, but you can't tell. Or, you know, it might have an extremely high acidity, but it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't taste that way. So it's better to see how your body reacts because that is a a more firm indication of sugar and acid levels. Same with alcohol too. You know, once you swallow the wine, you can feel if it's a red wine, you can kind of pay attention to your tongue and your cheeks and your your jowls. And if they're clenching, if if you can feel that tightness, that's gonna be an indication as to how high the tannins are. Once you swallow, if you take a, a little breath in, and you can kind of feel the burn into your esophagus, the deeper it goes, typically, the higher the alcohol is going to be. So all of these bodily reactions are what I try to pay attention to, to assess the structure of a wine. And and like I said, this isn't just a party trick to, you know, identify a wine without knowing what it is. All of these things are very valuable if you're creating a wine list and trying to come up with great pairings with dishes that you also have on your menu.
0: Sure. So what you talked about with Sitting and thinking about what you just tasted is really interesting to me. And we talk on this show a lot about uh, the way that our memories and emotions interact with the tasting process. And when you're tasting a wine and you're sitting and, and lingering on it and thinking about it, do you have a particular process or, or paths in your mind that you follow in order to kind of access that emotional response or those, those images that come to mind to kind of bring those to the front of your mind?
1: I think that's an interesting question because you're correct. There is so much emotion and, and memory and feeling based up and wrapped up in the tasting process and being trained to blind taste kind of separates you (laughs) from a lot of that stuff. So a lot of times when I'm in the tasting process, I I get into test mode where it's like, okay, I have two whites, two reds, 30 minutes. I'm going to identify, you know, region, tannin, acid, alcohol level, potential grape, quality level and potential age. And so you get in this almost formulaic way of tasting things where you're sitting with it to try and assess all of these things. And it's literally checks in boxes and circles of multiple choices. And, you know, it's a very mathematic scientific versus an emotional, like poetic way of approaching. And so I think a lot of times when I do taste, I, I get into that mode of essentially assessing these things. And after I do that kind of initial assessment of like, okay, this is, you know, a low alcohol wine with low tannins, high acid, uh, crunchy red fruit, probably from the new world, something like that. Then the next thing I try to think about is do I like this wine? Like, how do I feel right now? Am I actually enjoying the process? Because you can hate a well-made wine and still recognize that it's well-made. It's just not your cup of tea. But the most important experience of, of eating or drinking something is, are you enjoying it? Do you take a sip and then want to go back for another sip? Is it tasty? (laughs) That's that's really it. So I think after kind of going through that scientific process, the very, the very next thing is just like, do, am I enjoying this? And, and I think that's when those emotional connections and, and memory triggers, there's a lot of wines that I think I, I prefer based on those experiential things where it's like, oh, I first fell in love with this wine when I was eating dinner at midnight at a street cafe in Lisbon, mm. Portugal. Like, sure, <laughs> It's yeah. kind of hard to hate a wine in that kind of an experience. So, um, so yeah, there's definitely memory wrapped up and preferences are, are formulated not just based on tasting preferences, but also potentially experiential things and emotional things too. We'll be right back.
0: Hey everyone, Final Gravity Issue 4 is now available in the Bean to Barstool shop. This fourth issue of our zine telling intimate, human-centered stories from the world of beer is full of great articles, including Kate Power of Lady Justice Brewing talking about why she might be done with beer festivals, Ukrainian beer writer Lana Svitenkova writing about the Zoigl brewing tradition in Germany, UK writer Matthew Curtis talking about the blend of old and new in the Cascale tradition in Manchester, and many more. We believe passionately in this project, and if you believe the story of beer is ultimately a story about people and relationships, we think you'll love Final Gravity as well. You can order the new issue from our shop on beandobarstool.com, or you can also subscribe, including subscribing for your brewery tap room or break room. Or you can subscribe and sign up to support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash zines Now, back to the episode. Sure. Well, with that in mind, let's taste our first beer then. Uh, we've got two different beers that are both from Chicago breweries, Odious Sellers' Ruby Perspective and Is Was Tree Tipper. Both of these are mixed fermentation, so they're going to have some acidity and funk to them. Do you have one that you'd like to start with?
1: Um, Let's do the Ruby Perspective.
0: Okay, cool. So I'll let you get that open and pour yourself a little bit. Odious Cellars uh, focuses exclusively on mixed fermentation and barrel-aged beers. This one in particular is aged for 12 months in neutral wine barrels, uh, it is a ruby sour made with cherries and Cylon cinnamon. So it's Balaton and Montmorency cherries from South Haven, Michigan. And I will be really interested in your reaction to this. Have you had many sour or mixed fermentation beers?
1: I've had a few mixed fermentation and I do love sour beers. Yeah, I love sour beers. I, I think a lot of people that work in, in wine prefer an acid driven wine and mm. so that kind of parallels into the beer world. And I, I do love sours.
0: I was curious if that would be the case or if it would be the opposite where it's kind of like an uncanny Valley of this is, this is close, but it's not wine, you know, and like (laughs) you might, might have like that negative reaction.
1: No, not at all. This well, first off, it's a beautiful color and it smells so good. Mm -hmm. And it's also okay. It's, it's funky too. And I just, in terms of the wine world, I love a little bit of funk, a little bit of that, like barnyardy, Britannomyces. I Mm -hmm. I love that. I'm excited to try this.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It was kind of the boogeyman of the the wine and beer world for so long. And now it's like, you know, this actually tastes really good when it's in the right vehicle. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) So I'm just going to assess it like I would a wine. The color is really, really cool. It's almost like a peachy orange marmalade kind of a color, really persistent effervescence bubbles coming through a pretty hefty nose. I don't have to stick my my nose too far into the glass to smell it. I could just smell it as I was pouring too. That's delicious. That's so good. It's almost like you knew what kind of beer I already liked.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, that's so good. It's very acid driven, a little bit funky. I'm, I really enjoy natural wines too. And I think there's a perspective that all natural wines are extremely funky and mm. some, some of them are, but there's some natural wines that I've put on my list and I, I trained the team on them and they're like, this tastes like a beer. Um, so I feel like those kinds of, of wines can kind of cross into that, that beer world, especially sour beer world. So this in some ways actually does remind me very much of a wine.
0: Cool. I really like here the way that the cherry works with that funk. It kind of pulls out that meatier cherry note from it. It's not like those higher bright cherry flavors.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting, it's aged 12 months in neutral wine barrels. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I love that. I, I love neutral barrels more so than the new French or American barrels. It adds um, structure and and mouthfeel. And I'm, I'm ass- assuming it does the same thing for beer as well. I also,
0: um, and I'll confess, I'm not actually tasting this with you right now. Okay. But my memory from tasting this the last time is that it had this kind of curious little note of, of like dill or another another herb like real Hmm. lightly.
1: Yeah, I can pick that out. And, and a lot of times dill coconut, that kind of flavor can come from barrel aging as well. Hmm. Um, so I wonder if that would be a side effect of the aging process, or if that has something to do with maybe the influence of, you know, the cherry or whatever other flavoring components they're using.
0: Sure. And it wouldn't take much to kind of ride on that acidity. I feel like dill is going to get pushed up by that acidity.
1: Yes. Yeah. Okay. Now that you say, I know that the, uh, (laughs) <laughs> Power of suggestion is, is <laughs> it alive and well, but now that you say that, I do very much get that. Just kind of on on the the finish, and it's five point six percent alcohol, which is kind of a good sweet spot. I typically don't prefer super high alcohol anything, beer or wine, can kind of just overwhelm the the experience. And so I think that this is it's very it's balanced in my opinion. And yeah, this is this is fantastic. <laughs>
0: well, good, I'm I'm glad you enjoyed it. So we talked already a couple of times about the fun of getting to taste with another person and specifically another person from a different tasting background. Can you talk a little about that in your own life? Like, What has been the influence of tasting with other people, not just in an educational scenario where somebody else is teaching you something, but where you're just tasting with another thoughtful taster and kind of getting their sense of things. What role does that play in in your life as a wine lover and a wine professional?
1: Yeah, I mean, from the very beginning, tasting with other people was extremely intimidating to me, even if it was just going out with a friend to a bar and and doing a wine tasting. It's been intimidating for a very long time because I think, especially in the wine world, to be honest, people can be very snooty Mm -hmm. and very competitive and at times it's been pretty discouraging, especially when you're first starting out and any kind of educational pursuit to, to feel like you don't know anything and have people maybe belittle you intentionally or unintentionally. Can be, it can be a huge deterrent. And there have been times where I'm like, is this is really even the kind of the world that I want to be in. And so very early on, you know, tasting and, and calling things and people saying, nope, you know, it, this isn't a buttery wine. There's no mallow in it. It's like, okay, well, <laughs> that may be true, but like, you know, maybe that's not a very educational, progressive way of going about it. And so I think just getting the confidence to be able to taste and also the confidence to be wrong and know that that's totally fine. And that's how you learn. And that's how you grow was like step number one for me. Um, I've always been a little bit anxious, nervous of a person. So <laughs> overcoming that those feelings of inadequacy and just knowing that you're not going to you're not going to learn or grow or enjoy anything until you just get in there and do it. And you're going to make some mistakes. So that was a huge thing for me. And, you know, whether it's in an educational perspective, you know, I mentioned doing like blind tasting courses and, and studying, and I still have a, a wine group that I taste with whenever our schedules align, <laughs> or if you're going to a wine show or a wine festival, and you're just with friends and you're hitting up different booths and tasting things. I think it's it's always very rewarding to be tasting with other people they will always point out things that you don't notice. They'll challenge you, even just the, the verbiage or the terminology that people use can be really enlightening too. It's if you're describing something as citrusy and you're like, oh, it's like lemon. Okay, is it lemon? Is it lemon marmalade? Is it Meyer lemon? Is it lemongrass? Like, you know, there we all have such a, a different um, life experience of things that we've tasted or or eaten or experienced. And so something that somebody might commonly use to describe something might not be something that I have a whole lot of experience with. And so even just that element, I think it can be really enlightening and and progressive to anybody that's pursuing wine or beer, whatever it may be.
0: Absolutely. Um, I think that's a great avenue for the invitation for greater diversity and inclusion within both beer and wine as well is, is recognizing that. Everybody has different cultural backgrounds, everybody has different life experiences. And when you approach the tasting experience as an opportunity and sort of an invitation rather than just I am going to teach the people around me how much I know, then you you get such a fuller perspective on, on the stories of the people around you and also what you're tasting.
1: Exactly. I wholeheartedly agree. And there's some very cliche typical terms used to describe different wines. Um, that are pretty, you know, irrelevant to American culture. Like gooseberry is typically used to <laughs> describe uh, Sauvignon Blanc, and um, currant to describe Cabernet. And I think I didn't even eat or see a currant until about a year ago. <laughs> it's just, yes. you know, that's more of a European thing. So there is, yeah, there's so much wrapped around um, culture and experience and geography that can uh, reflect back to the, the tasting experience for sure.
0: Well, let's taste our next chocolate. I think I'm going to have you do the Fire Tree next, and we'll save the Good Morning Vietnam for last. So, Fire Tree is a UK bean to bar maker, but they focus primarily on cacao origins from the Pacific Rim. So, this one in particular is from the Philippines, uh, from Mindanao Island, which I believe is the southernmost island in the Philippines. Um, and it is going to be pretty markedly different from the Dominican Republic bar that you just tasted, even though they're basically about the same percentage, this is 73 and that was 70. And I will just say, I love their packaging so much. Yeah.
1: It's, it's funny. I, I love that you're talking about packaging and how to pay attention to that because I think it's so important, especially working in, um, in a setting where, you know, you're selling wine to guests. I, there are so many terrible wine labels. Hey, okay. there's even, ter- there's so many terrible beer labels oh, too. Absolutely. And, and <laughs> just like you don't taste just in your mouth, you, you smell it. You also, you eat with your eyes, you drink with your eyes first and foremost. And I think mm-hmm. a good, good packaging, good label. You're right. This package is beautiful. Even just the way, um, after you, you know, get through the little cardboard packaging, the the wrapper inside, like the matte finish is really beautiful. It's just, it's a nice experience. <laughs> yeah,
0: for sure. And within beer specifically, because beer for so long had this image as just being the drink of the people. And even once you got into to craft beer, it was very kind of macho and and still is yes. and is still trying to come out of that. And so there's been this attitude of like, Oh, don't make beer fussy. You know, like it. All that matters is what's in the glass, and it's like, no, it isn't. Like, (laughs) this is one more. This is one more way to enjoy this beverage. Is is wow, that's a cool label, and learning about the artist or whatever. Yeah. Uh, So just taking one more step, like you're extending your enjoyment of this thing.
1: One hundred percent agree. Yes, (laughs) I think I think all beverage, all food, I think is an art, and so that art should extend to to the label, to the packaging, to the whole experience. It's a very experiential based product. So that's part of the experience for sure. Absolutely. All right. This is a beautiful bar. I'm excited to eat it. So immediately my first impressions are surprisingly with the 73% versus the 70 on the last one, it still feels a little brighter. Mm -hmm. Texture is amazing.
0: Yeah, it's so silky. Feels,
1: yes, it's like satin in my mouth. I mean, it says on the packaging that there's notes of citrus. But even before that, I saw that. Yes, I would agree. There's definitely some citrus or like almost like clementine or orange, maybe notes.
0: Mm-hmm. Even though the definite bar had nuances to it, it is such a fudgy, chocolatey chocolate <laughs> that yeah. I feel like it kind of obscures some of those and you have to go digging for them. I feel like mm. on this fire tree, that fog is kind of cleared away and you're just getting all of those really delicate, but really beautiful undertones.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I delicate, I think is a, a great word. It's still very like rich and silky, but I I do agree with that. It's, um, maybe even like some kind of like floral things going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, really, really like graceful, beautiful.
0: Yeah. Like a kind, kind. of tropical floral. And I don't know exactly yes. what that means. That's not a concrete descriptor, but like, <laughs> <laughs> like if I just imagine what I think tropical flowers smell like, like there's a little bit of yeah. that. In there. <laughs> I also get a touch of sweet banana on this bar.
1: Oh yeah. Yes in the wine world, when you talk about tropical fruits, it can be things like mandarin, pineapple, banana, mango, passion fruit. I I feel like in the beverage world, my knowledge is the worst when it comes to coffee. I can't help but make comparisons to tasting chocolate and drinking coffee. And a lot of times coffee to me, when you're talking about the roast and where the acid maybe kind of lies, coffee can be kind of whiny that's Mm -hmm. even like a a term that makes sense when it's like too astringent or too acidic. And okay. I know nothing about coffee, but I feel like that's (laughs) a trend. Like all of the, all of the roasters that I I go to, there's this like very um, kind of like, eh, like screechy element to it. That's very popular right now. And I feel like this has a a nice acidity without being that like whiny kind of a tone.
0: Yeah. I, I know what you mean there. I love this bar.
1: Yeah, this is good. I don't think you would give me anything that wasn't unless it was a, a challenge, <laughs> but
0: no, I would not, uh, is, I would not trick you like that.
1: This is very complex too. I'd say mm-hmm. there's a lot of things that you can pick out of it. Every time you go back and have a little bit more, you can like, I'm feeling maybe like a little bit of like caramel, hazelnut. Mm-hmm. Every time I go back, I'm finding and tasting something different, which that's once kind again, of one of those
0: can, baseline flavors yes. that you know you're. <laughs> You're going to notice all the more esoteric stuff first. And then you're like, oh, yeah, caramel or honey or yep. whatever it is.
1: <laughs> yeah. Sometimes yeah.
0: it's like the most obvious thing, but like it's not the one that your brain registers as noteworthy.
1: Right. Every time I go back for a little bit more, you notice something different. And in the wine world, that's a super desirable thing. It's a very cerebral experience. And the more you can pick out, the more you taste and the more you, um, find. And it, it's typically an indicator of really high quality. And so I definitely feel that way with this bar.
0: Excellent. Fire Tree is really fun because they do uh, a variety of these single origins from around the Pacific, all at about the same percentage. So you can get a, like a taster pack from their website and be able to taste all those origins side by side. And it's a really eye-opening way to see the significance of terroir within cacao.
1: Mm. I love that term. Obviously, that's very popular in, in the wine world, and terroir is something that I haven't really given much thought to in terms of chocolate, and I'm guessing, you know, being the chocolate nerd that you are, if you talk about terroir of something like the first bar versus the second bar, are there country or origin-specific terroirs that people just know if it comes from, you know, the uh, Oko carib it's going to be this way versus...
0: There are generally, but they're kind of broad strokes because so much is dependent upon post-harvest processing. So how Mm -hmm. a, how the fermentation is done, but even more significantly how the roast is done when it arrives at the maker. So it's more like coffee in that way where you can kind of give some general, this origin is going to have these general characteristics, but it's not going to be as super specific as I feel like it might be in wine. Okay. So yes, like you can talk about, you know, Madagascar cacao is known for being very bold and like acidic and, and bright red berry and and stuff like that, but it's not going to be as consistent and as molecular. Interesting. Well, let's go ahead and jump right into our next beer. Then we're going to try Iswas tree tipper, and this is an interesting one. So this is a conventionally brewed Cezanne with spruce tips and honey, and then it's bottle conditioned with Britannomyces. So this is not going to be sour. You're going to get a little bit of acidity uh, from the fermentation, but that's honestly probably going to be pushed more than anything by how dry the beer is, but you're just going to get the fermentation character of that secondary fermentation with the bread.
1: It's got a really beautiful head to it. Very aromatic.
0: Should be quite effervescent. So that's really going to drive both of those.
1: And if I didn't know spruce tips, I I think I would, it might take me a second on the nose to pick that out. To me, it's very, very floral.
0: Spruce tips can vary so wildly in what kind of influence they'll have. Sometimes they're smoky, sometimes they're piney, sometimes they're fruity, floral.
1: Yeah. And I feel like the nose and the palate are, are, are quite different. You are so spot on. It is very dry. And getting so much floral aromas on the nose, you, the the dryness is kind of shocking.
0: Yeah, saison, even conventionally brewed with just Saccharomyces cerevisiae, is a very highly attenuated style to begin with. So it starts out dry, and then when you add in that Brettanomyces, it just gobbles up any last sugar that's remaining.
1: Yeah, and you end up with <laughs> this
0: bone dry beer,
1: which is still super refreshing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and delicate. Uh, Once again, a pretty, a pretty long finish, the dryness immediately hits you. But even after that, you, you get that lingering piney kind of sprucey quality to it as well.
0: Yeah, for sure. Do you get any kind of fruitiness from the spruce? I remember picking out a little bit of like pink grapefruit from it.
1: Yes, definitely. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Like grapefruit tart, grapefruit, even on the nose a little bit too.
0: And the dryness is going to be accentuated even more because of the honey. Ironically, they're adding that honey pre fermentation. So that's going to be 100% fermented out um, and isn't going to leave behind any kind of long chain sugars from like a corresponding amount of malt if they had used all malt. So that's going to dry it out even further. It's about as dry as a beer can get.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so as that relates to pairing, I mean, beyond just chocolate. How do, how would you relate that to what, what you would want to pair this with in terms of food?
0: Sure. So I, I would want to do some testing with something that that is this esoteric. Once you start throwing in extra ingredients, yeah, I mean, you've got right. to start, <laughs> you have to test drive that more than, you know, if you just gave me a standard pale ale and said, what would you put this with? I would probably love to see this with a bloomy rind cheese, I think. Ooh. Um, I think that that first of all, that level of effervescence is going to really like scrub that off your tongue and kind of fill it with, with air. And then that little bit of funk is going to work so well with the mustiness of the rind itself. So I think that would probably be my first place that I would start. And then I would, God, I would want to think about it a little more before I actually did a dish pairing.
1: Yeah. That cheese, that's, that is a very, very, I'm into that especially you're correct this the the effervescence it's like I would compare it to a well-made champagne it's Mm. just like the mousse is so rich and thick but also the dryness yeah it's very thirst quenching and refreshing um so thinking about texturally how this plays in your mouth and how you would pair that with potential food I think that's that's brilliant because I mean this is beautiful beer Okay, the, the, the most interesting, yeah, <laughs> the most interesting part of it to me is is the texture, like how it feels in your mouth, because that is very unique.
0: For sure. So you talked about coffee and not feeling like you have a great handle on coffee, but <laughs> with some of those sensory characteristics that you picked out, this is going to be a lot of fun. Then Belvis Good Morning Vietnam is a single terroir bar made with. Uh, cacao and coffee from the Lam Dong province of Vietnam. So Belvi is a Vietnamese maker. They do all Vietnam origins. And uh, in this case, the coffee and the cacao are both grown in the same region together. They're often crops that can actually be grown directly together. Uh, Coffee being more of a shade crop, it can grow in a cacao grove uh, shaded by the cacao. And it's a way for farmers to extend their income throughout the the calendar year instead of just waiting on a single harvest. Um, So this is a really, really fun bar.
1: Once again, it's beautiful. I feel like I just won the ticket to Willy Wonka.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Got that gold foil inside.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That's beautiful. I feel like there's definitely those dark, those like base notes, that foundation coming from from the coffee. It's still very bright. It's, it's certainly not like a, a one-trick pony. (laughs) Right. I do get the coffee. I mean, coffee and chocolate share so many characteristics anyways. It it seems like a natural thing to pair together anyways. Mm.
0: And so much of that is process driven. I mean, the, the fermentation and then roast is so similar on both.
1: Yeah. A hugely persistent finish. It's still just like coating my mouth.
0: You mentioned the acidity issue with coffee, comment on that here. Cause I definitely get a lot of that lingering acidity.
1: Yes, same. Like my mouth is watering. Once again, when I'm tasting wine and I, I teach my, my team to do this too, like, don't be afraid to look dumb, hold your mouth open, stick out your <laughs> tongue a little bit. And you can just, you can feel or even see like how much saliva can accumulate on your tongue. And and that's certainly happening. And I can feel the sensation even in in my, my like jowls, my cheeks too. But once again, it's not out of balance. It's not like a bitter kind of acidity. It's not, it's a very refined acidity, but it is there and it is pervasive.
0: Yeah. It's a beautiful bar.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Well, the last thing I want to ask you about is how, the things we've talked about today with tasting translate into the service environment. You are the wine director for Sueño and Tender Mercy in Dayton. Those obviously can be very fast-paced environments. You don't have the time that you want. How do you give a customer the tasting experience that they're going to remember when you're juggling 40 different customers and, and you're turning over <laughs> tables and all that?
1: Well, I think the the first thing is finding people that want to have that experience and are willing to ask for it too. You know, I can start conversations with people and if they're curious, then I can really, I can dig deep. And I think so many people, you know, referring back to paying attention to what you're doing and eating and tasting a lot of people come in to, to eat or to, to drink for a date or a business meal, and maybe aren't there looking for the, the kind of tasting experience. And so first of all, picking out those people that are going to appreciate it, it is a big thing. And as a guest, not being afraid to ask for that too. When somebody asks to speak to the Psalm, I immediately just get giddy. So if, if you ever go to Tender or Sueno or honestly pretty much any restaurant, asking the advice of whoever created the wine list or the cocktail list or the beer list, it, it's like the highlight of my day every time it happens. So I think that's kind of just basic step one. And then, yeah, you know, it, it is a lot to balance. A lot of times there's a guest that's unhappy about something and a guest that wants a wine recommendation and a server that needs help with, you know, avoiding something that they messed up and there's people waiting at the door and somebody just broke a glass in the well of ice. And so, yeah, there, there's a million things all happening at once. I will say um, I've worked in a lot of different restaurants and my team at Swayneo is really, really, really special. And there are times where I feel useless uh, because everybody is very good at their job. I have the best host I've ever worked with. I have an amazing bar team. Our chefs are absolutely incredible. And so that makes my job a lot easier because there are times where I'm not the one putting out those fires. They're all very well-equipped to put out the fires themselves, um, giving me more free time to actually have in-depth conversations with people. So I feel very fortunate in that way. Very, very fortunate.
0: That's great. I got to get back into Sweeney and tender mercy soon here.
1: Yes, yes, we would love to have you. And the two experiences are so drastically different. So Tender Mercy started before Sueno, and it is a cocktail lounge. And vast majority of our sales are from cocktails, and they're wacky, creative, inventive cocktails. And the wine list at Tender Mercy is, in my opinion, much better than the wine list at Sueno. Even I've had more time to perfect it and kind of create an identity. And so when we opened Sueno, because of the connection with Tender, there was this reputation for cocktails already. However, cocktails don't make a great food pairing. Beer and wine, mm-hmm. way better with food. And sure. so it's been a little bit challenging overcoming that perception and that, that local population's gravitation towards doing cocktails with their meal. And so I'm still, I'm still building the list at Suenio. It's very, very much a work in progress. And I'm, I'm excited over the summer, I think it's gonna be my, my opportunity to really flush it out and make it the list that I want it to be. Chef Jorge's food is so complex. There's multiple layers of flavor. There's, there's heat, there's herbs. Everything's cooked over a, a wood-burning fire. So there's char, there's smokiness. And that just is like a challenge for me to pair wine with. But when I find these good pairings, it is so rewarding. And so, yeah, being able to cultivate a wine list around his menu has been amazing. And communicating that to our guests, I think, has been really amazing.
0: Lauren's passion for not only savoring and enjoying the tasting process for herself, but for extending that to her guests is part of what makes Tender Mercy and Sueño such special places. Fine dining and high-class drinks don't have to be snooty or snobby. These spaces remind us that flavor should be fun, that you can laugh during a fancy dinner, that you don't have to wait for a special occasion to open a great bottle with friends, because right now making it through another week is a special occasion. Lauren's learned that, and she's sharing it with her guests, and I'm glad she shared it with us today. Thanks to Lauren Gay for coming on the show, and to all of you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Bean to Barstool.